The trick was too good. It was too simple. The audience hardly had time to see it. He's a dreadful magician. No, he's a wonderful magician. He's a dreadful showman. He doesn't know how to dress it up, how to sell the Why, trick. how does he do it? He uses a double. No, 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 no. It's too simple. This is a complex illusion. You only say that because you don't know the method. It's a double that comes out at the end. It's the only way. I've seen him perform the trick three times now, Mr. Carter. The prestige is the same man. No, it's not. The same man comes out of that second cabinet, I promise you. It's the same man. He wears padded gloves to hide his damaged fingers, but if you look closely, you can tell. He doesn't know how to sell his trick to an audience, but I do. Yeah, well, we can use it as a climax of the show. Yes. The man stole my life. I'm gonna steal his trick. We've got to find someone who looks like you on stage. He doesn't use a dog. Robert, I don't know how Borden does the trick, so okay. either you either wait for him to retire and buy the secret, or you listen to how I would do it. And the only way that I know how to do it is to find you a bloody good double. Hi everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. And welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. This is the show where Mike and I watch movies separately, but we don't discuss them. We talk them on the podcast for the first time. This week we have another request from James in Colorado. Uh, ironically, one of the settings of this movie we're about to talk about. Today we're going to do The Prestige, the 2006 Christopher Nolan movie with a screenplay by Christopher Nolan and his brother Jonathan, based upon a novel by Christopher Priest, which Mike, you mentioned that you had read a long time ago. I'd never read the novel. Um, so let's talk in part one. We talk about our overall take on the film. Mike, go. I would have thought that this is a nearly impossible movie to film. You're right. I do love the bil- the book very much. I realized I was in good hands. You, know, you can never tell with the Nolans. They're, they either it's never singles or doubles. It's a home runs and strikeouts. So I couldn't tell where I was going to be. And then halfway through the movie, David Bowie showed up. And I said to myself, Oh, okay. I can see where we are uh, in, you know, in the Nolan oof. So it, I thought it was a great movie. It condensed a lot of information and what is really a, a classic slow burn into what for the Nolans is a very brief film. This is a, a, a very brief two hours, a very condensed two hours. And, you know, I, if you, if you looked at the cast list and you saw, you know, who was starring in it, you would say, okay, th- this is a film carried by its two stars. And then again, Michael Caine largely carries the movie from the audience perspective, which the Nolans rely on him a lot yeah. to do that in their uh, convoluted uh, plotting. But but boy, does everybody carry the movie. You can tell exactly where you are. Actually, if I have any critique, uh, it's that it explains more than the book explains. It's It's very much on the nose and it doesn't leave you guessing what's happened at the end, but it does do something beautiful that almost no Nolan movie does in my opinion, what's which that? is that it, it opens itself up to endless rewatching because I can tell knowing the secrets going in, I enjoyed watching the movie because there are some lines which are meant to be of utter significance, but are themselves throwaway lines. Right. And so this is, I think one of the Nolan's most rewatchable movies from the perspective that once you understand quote unquote how the trick is done the your enjoyment of the movie increases 
not decreases. In fact, yeah, you you watch a totally different movie the first time through diachronically than you watch synchronically. That's great because, and it's funny because it is a total Nolan movie with like the multiple timelines and the slow burning and the music buildup and things like that. But it's 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 great that Christopher Nolan. I love that he has he gets to have it both ways, right? You get to get the magic tricks and you get to get the secrets, right? You get to have them both, right? And it's funny because I, it occurred to me watching this is that magic on film shouldn't work like magic live in a theater is great somebody does a card trick in front of you it's great i, I mean i love watching those youtube videos of david blaine when he just walks around neighborhoods and just does card tricks on the and corner. ricky j yeah same thing right like we, and i saw ricky j live we did an episode about that so when you watch ricky j make a card go from one end of a table and you're like how does he do that? like it's you're it, you literally can't believe your eyes right now, in a movie, that's harder to do because we go into the movie knowing, well, the whole thing is going to be CGI and it's act like it's, that's what movies are. And we love that. Right. So it's great that you are still in utter suspense about how, the, you know, how the tricks work. And even when you get the answer to the tricks, you know, you're, you're still amazed. So I think it's really cool that he gets to have it both ways. Yeah, it, it should be almost Brechtian. It should it should be one of those moments that reminds you that you're watching a movie, but somehow they make it part of the continuum of the movie, of course, a movie's magic tricks are very different than the magic tricks that are done in the movie. Right. A movie's magic tricks are one character says, no, no, no. Okay. Just because I showed you how the pistol loader works doesn't mean it's safe. You can still right. get shot. And then, you know, Which of you course, the, the key, the key plot point is that the guy gets shot. And, right. and so that that's how a movie does magic tricks. It introduces a concept, makes the concept disappear and then brings it back when you don't expect it. Yeah, I loved I loved that aspect of it. I loved how it reminded me of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, where Scarlett Johansson's like the, she's like the the double blind agent going back and forth between the two camps and how. And I love how quiet the movie is. It's funny because you said you said you had read the novel and couldn't imagine it being a film. When I was watching the film, I couldn't imagine it being a novel because it struck me as so like visually so much fun and like the whole setting and and how it was all done. So it was, that's a really interesting take. The brilliance of it is it's both diaries, but the but certain things are dramatized. So the the different diaries are in different people's hands, and there's all there's also a frame narrative which explains after the fact what's oh, okay. what's gone on. So the when you read funny, the novel, you're reading the diaries that they're that they're reading in the movie. Okay, you're reading the diaries plus a third diary of a character that you never meet in this movie who's who's inconsequential for purposes of this discussion. But part of the point is, for example, when you read Alfred's diary, he has arguments with himself because they trade the diary back and forth to communicate. Right. So he'll say something like, I think this, and then later he'll write, <laughs> I think that. Uh, and so he's he's clearly, even in his diary, a man divided. I like the way that it was dramatized in this film because it you, you had to... You, there. It was necessary that those same lines exist, but it wasn't possible to do it in the same dramatic fashion. They get away with a little bit of diary reading and voiceover, but you can't do that for two hours right. the same way that you could sink into this book for two days and have a grand old time. That's great. You know, I love, let's move on to another idea is that I love the whole idea of this, like, you know, what Harold Bloom called in that book that more people know about than have actually read the anxiety of influence. Right. And I love that the, the rivalry between these two guys and the sense of competition. And it occurred to me watching it was, you know, what would happen if you had this profound artistic calling, 
but also an unbelievable sense of competition and a really healthy ego and a desire to get even with the guy you think you know killed your killed your uh, the love of your life. And I love how it's about how these artists have to keep upping the ante, right? So you have people like you know um, Nabokov reads a thousand uh, novels, uh, a thousand romance novels, and says, "No, I'm going to up it. I'm going to make Lolita." And then you know Joyce reads all these novels, and says, "No, I'm going to write Ulysses." And Melville writes him his own travel narratives. And then right says, no, I'm going to write Moby Dick. And, it, you know, it's like how it's like, how does the Spanish tragedy become Hamlet? And I love the idea that they have to keep you have to keep upping the other guy to make it better and better and better. So the question is, from a dramatic perspective, what would that feel like if you did that every day? Right. Devoted so your you, life to it. If you if you had to sink down into the experience of a thing to do it. Could you also consequently be the person who enjoyed doing it or got to see the faces of the people when you did it? And right. the answer is no, because <laughs> the, it's like um, it's what I call the summertime blues conundrum, which is that you you got to work all day to get the right. money to put the gas in the car, to drive the car, to go enjoy yourself while you're working. So, right. So, in fact, you'd have to be two people, right. one to do it and one to enjoy it. And they could never be the same person. One right. would have to kill the other. Well, that's also why Hugh Jackman is. That's why his whole his whole artistic vocation wasn't really to get power over an audience. It was just well, he just liked to see their faces. He said, "I just wanted to see their faces." So that's why he works out the balcony trick because he didn't want to be under under the stage anymore. He didn't want the guy root the drunk to get all the uh, the applause. He wanted to see their faces because you know why else do you do a magic trick? Did you ever get a magic set when you were a little kid? Yes. Like, right. Me too. Right. And what's the whole fun of that is that you want to see someone's face when you, when you figure out what card they had, like the, the, the power of that and the payoff of that, that's what these guys live for. And that's of course how, that's what he works out with the Tesla machine is that I can be up on the balcony now and see everybody's face. So welcome back in part two. We like to talk about our favorite moments. Mike, what was yours? So this movie convinces you that you understand a lot of the surprises that are coming. But I really like when Alfred sneaks on stage during the great Danton's first performance and snaps the trap shut on the lady's fingers, not only killing the dove, uh, but, but smashing her fingers to pieces. Um, nobody expects that. No, nobody, nobody watching expects him to suddenly yeah. appear. And so the, the movie as we were talking about before, does a really good job convincing you that you have all the information. Yes. And it only wants you to think that you have all the information so that it can play these surprises. Uh, but, you know, killing the dove is not enough. It's the expression on that, you know, on that actress's uh, face when she plays the lady with the broken fingers. It's That's an amazing moment and very surprising. Well, it's like the scene where where um, Alfred, you know, Christian Bale does the whole thing where he hangs root upside down and tells everybody come across the street and see my show. Like that's yes. the whole thing is you know the whole setup, you know exactly how the trick's supposed to work. But then Christopher Nolan says, "No, there's another trick. Actually, there's like a trick inside this trick that exactly. I now I'm going to do for you now." But that's you know that but that's screenwriting, right? It's yeah, control right. controlling the information right. and then using the information that the audience thinks they have as misdirection. Yeah, you know what it is? Okay, here's how the bank robbery is going to go. We all ready? And then the bank robbery cannot go the way it was just described in the plan because that's like the trick inside the trick. And then each clown kills one of the clowns and then the last clown <laughs> takes the school bus. Totally. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay, so, so what's yours? Mine was when there's this there's this very cool – you mentioned David Bowie before who's so funny. is so great in this movie. Mine was this um, – 
this strange little like sub theme with Andy Serkis and, and the whole thing about the, the Tesla lab. And it's when Edison's, when Thomas Edison's guys get to Tesla's lab and burn it down. And I think what's interesting is that Edison is portrayed in this movie as this kind of like cutthroat capitalist, right? Like, like I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of Tesla. He's a threat to me and, and my, my light bulb patents. And Tesla of course is like the great dreamer. I mean, you have Ziggy Stardust playing Nikolai Tesla, right? And what I think is great about it is there's this idea from Kubrick's, Kubrick or Arthur C. Clarke said this when they wrote 2001 was that at a certain level, technology will seem like magic, right? And of course, that's exactly what happens in the movie is that Tesla is this, you know, air quotes, electrical engineer, but he's really another magician. He's an, an, he like, you know, the magician goes to another magician to say, build me this, this effect, the same way they go to Michael Caine to say to, to build me the dove trap right and i think it's really cool that at a certain level to us you know what what is technology going to look like in 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 500 years so I, I heard a guy from apple once say if you grew up with it it's not technology so that's kind of funny so someone my age like i'm in my mid-50s like the iphone is still like fascinating to me not as fascinating as when it first came out but like a kid they're like yeah big deal it's like it's like like but i grew up with like a rotary dial so it's kind of funny that the movie says like technology is like magic in a certain and, it, sense. and it charts the advancement of technology from the perspective of when when Borden gets his machine from Tesla, it's just sparks. It's actually his version of showmanship. Yes. But 10 years later, you when the great Danton it. gets his, it's a teleportation slash cloning machine. Right. You could actually write it's at first it's like a Disney set where you go onto a Disney ride and the sparks come out. Oh, we're going to put you in another world. But then 10 years later, you actually go into the other world. That's right. And and so it's about the way that technology ultimately fulfills evil promises. Welcome back for our prestige. So, Dan, I'm going to throw something out there about the ending or I think a lot of a, a, another motif of this movie. And I just wanted to get your take on it, because I think the heart of this movie lives when the great Danton figures out how the fishbowl trick is done and realizes that Alfred Borden saw it before him, which is that this is not about tricks. The question is dedication to performance and what that would be like. We, we touched on it a little bit in part one, but the question is if you're performing all the time, if you're performing specifically when people don't think you're performing, who are you then? You've become subsumed by your art, I think. And it's a very romantic notion of how of what we think about artists and artistic creation, right? So we imagine that, you know, Picasso would wake up every morning, I must paint, or I see new colors of blue or something like that. But of course he was doing all kinds of other things. And I think that's I think that the movie presents a romanticized version. And that's not a, that's not criticizing at all. It's a romanticized version of how we think about artists. Well, so I just want to challenge I I I'm with you. Here's what I think the movie does well, though, and and what it challenges is it says, you think it's great. Now, let me show you a guy cutting his own fingers off. Right. Right. Because so because so the question well, is, he says you have to get your hands dirty. He says, you right. have to get your and, hands dirty. And, and, and the question at the end of the movie is, what'd you do it for? And did you do right. it for the right thing? Right. You know, because because Borden, I think, ultimately understands magic in a way that the, that the great Danton doesn't. You ready? Give, give me give me a book title that you read, give me a book you love, Mike, that you put down all the time and say, man, like, I wish I'd written that. Like, I love that book so much. I wish I had written that. Give me one. Voss. Okay. By Patrick White. Okay. What would you give to have done that? What would you have given 
to have written that book? Yeah, a couple of fingers. No problem. Right now, now, right now of course, like we, we laugh about the podcast, but what if you actually got the chisel out? And I said, okay, Mike, bite down on this piece of wood. And now at night, you have your day job, but at night you're going to write this novel and it's going to be as good as that. So you ready to lose two fingers? Do I be like, well, I don't know. I'd rather just read another book. I, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> do you not have a chisel? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's why I think that's why we have this idea about like, you know, like why do so many musicians, you know, um, die young and like this, like this whole thing about like, what are you willing to give? You give your whole life for your art. Most of us, first of all, most of us don't have that talent. And certainly most of us don't have that dedication. Right. I mean, if you want to play um, basketball, like Michael Jordan, Right. What are you what are you willing to give up? It's going to be some equivalent of like the two fingers. It's going to be your, your personal life, all these things. But you get to be Michael Jordan. Right. It's your wife. It's right. your kids. Right. It's your spare time. Right. right. It's 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 the fact that the the you that's performing this. I think that this is what's going on with Borden. The you that's yeah. performing owns your relationships. Yes. Right. Owns your what what would it be like to be that dedicated and be sitting with your wife? It would be as though she were married to another man and you were trying to have his conversation. Exactly. Right. And That's so exactly I, I think that like. though they're so brilliantly dramatized. And in fact, again, I, I don't want to wear out the example, but there's there's a continuous question. Are artists born or are they made? Right. Are they born or are they made? And so they show you two magicians and one is born and one is made because the the the, the joke of it is. I could tell you how I do the trick. You still couldn't do it. Right. Because the secret, Michael Caine says, the, the, the secret is nothing. What you The secret impresses no one. What you use it for is everything. So the secret of artistic creation, okay, how does that happen? That's a big secret. No one knows it. But what you use it for is everything. And it, I just one thing I'll draw in from the book is that they both have different names. And Alfred is their creation. I think one's called Albert and and one's called something else. And so they just they decide uh, on funny. Alfred Borden who's who's a the you know twins you mean yeah okay. yeah that and 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 so essentially not it's neither man. And so I think that what the movie does really well at the end is it even it doesn't hide any of these ideas. It wears these ideas right on the outside especially if you if you rewatch it. Well the challenge is to look closely. Right. And so, and so halfway through, if you're watching closely and he says, you know, I don't know, or I've been asking myself that all week, uh, right. You kind of smile and you say, ah, um, one man is trying to be two men. So they're each half men. But the question is, if you were really dedicated and you were born to do it, you're actually like two men trying desperately to be one man. And it just doesn't work. Because that's the problem with our friends, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? The point is that these these two men are trying to be one man and they can't be. They're two different people, right? And they can't be. And of course, it ends in disaster. And and it's 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 brilliantly played how you can tell which one it is who's being led off to the gallows, right? There's no question in your mind who survives at the end, uh, who's reckless, uh, who loves risk, who's angry, who's impulsive. Uh, and and who ultimately ends up in the gallows? Well, let's talk about that because there's no question about that until you know the secret. So, so I think you know you made the joke about here's our prestige. I think what's cool about the movie is that it, of course it obeys its own rules, right? You get you get the pledge, you get the turn, you get the prestige, right? And I think what's cool about this movie is 
we think that the, I, I love not knowing how long a movie is before I turn it on because we think the movie's over and we think the prestige is the, the actual working Tesla machine. We're like, okay, that's it. Like he, Hugh Jackman topped Christian Bale. He actually made the Star Trek, you know, uh, transporter. That's it. The movie's over. And we're like, holy cow, that's unbelievable. He won up them. But the real prestige is, of course, the identical twins. The real prestige is the scene of, you know, um, the, the brother getting his fingers chopped off. And what's cool about that is that it's it's much less incredible than the Tesla machine. I mean, it's low tech. It's super low tech. You look like me. You hide. You wear a disguise. We'll do this kind of thing. And, we'll, and just like the, the guy who pretends to be Chinese who can lift a fishbowl. We're going to devote our whole life to this this art and we're going to create this big illusion. And it, it struck me that it's just, it's low tech, but it's even more impressive. It's like the bullet catch, right? Like, how do you do the bullet catch? Remember how you do it? How do you do the bullet catch? You just, you just don't put a bullet in it. Like, it's not like some secret kind of thing where you have the right velocity aimed by physics with a protractor to figure it out. No, you just don't put a bullet in the gun. Like, it's that simple. And I think that that's what's cool about it is that, again, the secret impresses no one, but what you use it for is everything. Yeah, and I I think just to wrap up that it there's a there's a little bit of a justification of the art of the Nolan brothers who are writing the Prestige, which is what you know. So I have actually read I've read the um the the script to uh, the Dark Knight that that they wrote, and the funny thing about the Dark Knight is that written by the Nolan brothers, uh, they write all their sound effects in their scripts which a lot of people don't know. So for example, when they when the Joker like does something to somebody that they write whoosh. <laughs> and so the question is, if you're two grown men and your brothers, why would you sit around in a room like for the rest of your life and write bwom or whoosh? And the answer is because when we do it right, like we don't always do it right, but right. when we do it right, it's great. We create a sense of wonder for people that we don't know and that we'll never see who are watching our stuff in the dark, who want to be convinced like children that there's a little bit more. You know, I think the the other secret heart of the movie is when Alfred knocks on the column and he said, I just we had to get at from all this. The world is the world's too solid yeah. and to live in it or to just accept it would be too much. It would it, the gravity of it, like the literal gravity of it would crush you. Yeah. And so there's got to be a way to float. Yeah. What do we want? He says we want to be fooled. We want to, and that's why, like, why in the world would you buy tickets to go watch Ricky Jay or go see David Blaine? Like you're paying to be fooled. It's the same reason why we love reading murder mysteries. Like, like anyone, you ever have someone brag that they knew the ending of a murder mystery? Like, well, I saw the kind I figured out like, well, then it's a bad, then it's bad. Like you, you're supposed to have your mouth drop open. You're supposed to watch the movie. And then when she says, she's my sister, she's my daughter, she's my sister and my daughter, your, your whole universe, like you escape gravity. Great pick. So thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about The Prestige. Follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. Follow us where else? Letterboxd. Letterboxd, right? And we hope you enjoyed our magic show. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.